HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And I'm Mary Izette. From Fomentabody. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special New York City Beer Week show. James Watt from uh, BrewDog just happened to walk in, and by chance his new book is out, uh, Business for Punk. So we're going to be talking to him. We've got Ann Becerra, Ann Likes Beer, and Stephen Valland from uh, Brooklyn Brew Shop, who was in the BrewDog uh, TV episode set in Brooklyn. So thanks to our sponsors, Union Beer Distributors, supplier of world-class ales and lagers. All right, so welcome to the show, James, and happy New York City Beer Week, everybody. Cool, thank you. Hopefully you'll be hearing the show sooner than later. Um, we're here at Jimmy's number 43 with our, with our remote device. So, James, you know, uh, just catch us up to date. You've you got a book out, and uh, tell us about the book and uh, why you wrote it. Well, I love business books, but the more I read, the more frustrated I got with them. So I wanted to kind of do an alternate take on a business book. So it's kind of like a business book for people who hate business. It's telling people to disregard everything that they've heard about business, letting people know that you can do things in different ways, kind of turn traditional business conventions on its head and have a bit of fun with it. So yeah, it's business for punks and it's out now. There was, there was a lot of good things in there and I, I related to it as, as a small business person. In fact, you inspired me and, and uh, I'll definitely take some of the points of it. You know, what, what, what do you recommend to a guy like me? I mean, <laughs> you know. Um, I think every business has got to be underpinned by passion so you've got to do something that you love something you care so much about and you've got to have a mission that underpins what what you do and i think that's something that's so good about the beer community it's that kind of passion and love for beer that ties everything together well i learned a few things from the book i didn't know that you you had started as a boat captain yeah i spent uh seven years in the high seas of the north atlantic and the north atlantic in january and february is a tough place to make a living (laughs) i'm sure it is have you ever been on a boat like that Anne? have i no um but did that help inspire some of your uh kind of you will you talk about the penguin beers (laughs) if you will yeah well i think a lot of the business philosophies was kind of born in the in the high seas of the north atlantic so my kind of approach to leadership to team building the kind of work ethic all that was instilled during my time at sea so it definitely gave me a good foundation to go on and uh, that's good and, man. it's funny that you're on a book business. tour and you're not selling beer today <laughs> i'm always selling beer <laughs> you know a lot of things have happened since uh, we last saw you sorry there's a there's a bell because i think we got a special delivery of, of one of your beers <laughs> but um you know i, I remember when we, we first met you were just starting the tv show and uh, how did that happen? I mean, you, you really got out there and, and you put yourselves out there and your show's been successful. Because I know that other people have tried to do beer shows and there hasn't really been a successful one. I think all you need to do a successful beer show is a Scottish accent that people can't <laughs> understand and lo- lots of nipples. <laughs> it seems to be the formula that's right for us. The show is so much fun and we just started off making videos. We put them on our website and TV people wanted to make a show with us. So it's like, yeah, we get to hang out and speak about beer. So it's all good. Yeah, in your book you say spoon feed information and force feed passion. And I think that definitely comes across in the, uh, in the show. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, this kind of feels like a BrewDog's moment. Literally, Stephen called someone at his, at his office... And one of your beers is here. What is it? 
So you could probably explain it a bit better than I can. So Mashtag is a beer that we make once per year where we let people in social media decide the beer style, they decide the malt bill, they decide the hops that we use in it, they decide the special twist that we give the beer, they decide the ABV, so it's a open source beer. Um, so we get the recipe, we put it together with our community and we make the beer. So this is Mashtag, and this is the one that we made for 2015, and it's a American hopped black barley wine. Whatever the hell that is. Tell us about the, when you first started making beer. Like you, you guys had a, you were making beer and you got a big order. I, I remember that story. Tell, tell us yeah. about that. It's pretty interesting. So we, we set up in 2007, two humans, one dog, and a big mission to make other people's <laughs> passionate about great beer as we are. And for the first year, we did everything. So we'd bottle the beer by hand. We'd deliver the beer ourselves. We'd sleep in the office floor. We'd both move back in with our parents because we had no money. And was kind of going nowhere and people in the northeast of Scotland told us to make cheaper beers and beers with less hops in it and beers with less flavour and change your packaging. It was like we were determined if we were going to fail, we was going to fail doing something that we were passionate about. And we ended up entering a, a beer competition with a big shop chain in, in the UK and we finished first, second, third and fourth in this beer competition <laughs> and nice. sold them lo- loads of beer and things started to pick up from there. But were you able to handle that production? Um, well, no. Um, we had to get some money to, to do that, so we went to our bank, which was Bank of Scotland, and said, hey, we've just got this amazing contract with Tesco, but I'm going to need $100,000 for a bottling line, I'm going to need $50,000 for, not dollars, but I'm making it for a US audience, we, we deal in pounds, and um, with the Queen's face on them, um, for a bottling line and fermentation tanks, but we're a young up-and-coming company. Um, you want to work with us and the bank just laughed at me they're like you've been going a year you're losing money you're not even paying your small loan back there's no way we can give you the money to to do this so we went to the bank next door which was hsbc and said to hsbc our bank have just offered us an amazing finance deal on a bottling line and fermentation tanks but if you can match it we're going to shift our bank into you we're a young up-and-coming company you want to work with us and and they gave us the money. So business plan year one was make American sell beers and tell lies to banks. What was that tank story? Didn't you drive a tank somewhere? Oh, uh, yeah. We, uh, we uh, to launch Equity Punks, our alternate business model, we drove a tank um, through the streets of London. <laughs> we actually got it from a website called tanksalot.com. <laughs> Which is a good website to check out. Sure. That's sweet. Now, you know, f- fast forward now. Well, first, let's talk. I want to talk about the TV show because yeah. uh, it was really cool. We did the Brooklyn show that you guys featured Stephen and Erica at the Brooklyn Brew Shop. And why don't you tell us your take on it, Stephen, being part of one of their episodes? Sure, yeah. Um, what really surprised us pleasantly was how serious everyone was about beer. And um, I think a lot of people from the outside might think like a TV show that that's going to be fun that's going to be cute and then they're going to do something and then they're going to bring the pot up and it's going to be real beer and, you know we're all going to pretend but but you actually made the beer yeah yeah and they had engineers on our roof um, yeah for anyone who didn't see it we turned essentially our apartment building into a, a brew system so we had the hot liquor tank on the roof threw some cables out of the window um, did a mash on the fifth floor then boil in our apartment on the third floor then you know more tubes down the stairwell into the basement where we fermented our beer. Um, and yeah, there were engineers there for two days hooking stuff up, and uh, we met uh, James and Martin, and um, yeah, we had, a, we had a really great time making making beer and educating uh, all our neighbors along the way. Do you remember doing that episode? Yeah, hell yeah, and the thing that I remember most is people in New York are so mean. We had to like <laughs> knock on, we had to knock on everyone's apartment door in Stephen and Erica's apartment building and ask if we could run hoses or pipes. We'd had doors slammed in our face, we'd had people shouting abuse at us. <laughs> if we'd done that in Scotland, people would be asking us to come in and have a cup of tea and have a nice chat and hang out. In New York, no. Don't knock on anyone's door in this city. That's the thing that we learned. Yeah, when they got there, they asked what neighbors we knew uh, so that we can um, Don't know anyone. help out. And we're like, oh, I'm sorry. And oh, did you just move here? No, it's actually been seven years now. Uh, so no, I, I, actually, neighbors. I haven't seen the show because I don't have a TV, but wasn't there an episode where you guys were driving in a car making beer in the back? Yeah, we did that episode with uh, Sam at Dogfish Head, so we made it on a NASCAR speedway. So it was the fastest <laughs> beer that ever been made. We mashed in going over 100 miles per hour. The the yeah NASCAR speedway I think it's the Dover. So what, what is that? It's like your fantasy. You go in there and you can just 
with the show? Did they give you the budget to to do all these things? Yeah, it's it's so much fun. So we get to make beer in like crazy places. So in Michigan, we made a beer with founders underneath a frozen lake. So there's like two feet of ice. So we cut a hole in the ice and we sank our mash tun and like mashed in down there. Uh, we made a beer down in Mexico and, and we've just done all kind of crazy stuff. So yeah, they let us do whatever we want and have fun with beer, which is awesome. Wow. And how, how did you guys, what made you grow so fast in England? I mean, I know that... Scotland. You, it was? Scotland. Scotland. It's not, it's not the same England right. as Scotland. It's not the same. <laughs> no, it's not the same. <laughs> but in the UK, I mean, are you, what made you grow in the UK? And That's I think, what I meant. Yeah, I think it was just like such an opportunity there. So the UK is like behind... Scotland. <laughs> Scotland. <laughs> um, Scotland in the UK is like behind America when it comes to craft beer. So it's just 1% of the market here. It's about 14%. But back in 2007, there was almost nothing. So there was just people were fed up drinking mass market generic industrial lowest common denominator beers and ourselves and other amazing companies such as like Beavertown and Magic Rock and Kernel and Lovey Bonds kind of started giving them a choice and there's just this whole kind of wave of amazing craft beer in the UK at the moment so it's an exciting place to be for good beer. How important were the bars to your your business and Mm -hmm. did you have any issues getting in bars that you guys didn't own? Yeah, always. I mean, in, in the UK, so many of the bars are owned by the kind of huge beer companies and big chains, so it's so difficult to get your beer in there, so it's almost like this kind of closed system. So we wanted to open our own bars and not only stock our own beers, but a selection of our favourite beers from all over the planet. And we wanted the staff to be passionate and knowledgeable and evangelical about, about all the beers. And for us in the UK, because the understanding of good beer was so low, it wasn't so much we were selling beer, we were selling information, we're selling education, we're selling passion, and we want to kind of create the perfect environment to do that in. That's good. And what we're drinking now, actually, it's funny that you're here for New York City Beer Week. I don't think you realize it, but you're here to it's a happy launch accident. the book. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there's a cool thing that's happening. I don't even want to talk about the spirit and uh, Greenpoint. A number of the New York City breweries are doing a state malt and state hop. So our, our big push is to get people to buy New York State hops and malt. And uh, this year, 15 New York City breweries, that's a lot, because there only were four or five a few years ago. No, it was over 20. They yeah, all this made is the first time we've had that. it. Yeah, the same malts and hops. So this one, it's, it's like a Brett Pale Ale yeah. from our friends at Greenpoint. And you're asking where to go tonight. I know that Ann's doing a big night at Tapping 307, and uh, but Greenpoint Beer and Ales is a brew pub as well, and they're in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and they have some great stuff. So they're really, they've really come a long way in terms of their beers. It's funny, too, that you're talking about, you know, brewing these really strong beers, and you guys were some of the ones who were the strongest because we've noticed this year almost all of the smash beers are really low ABV. Um, it's the fourth you know, or fifth big year that the Brewers Guild is doing Beer Week, and I think everyone knows what they're in for. So our trend now is going the opposite. You know, We want the 4 or 5% beers we can drink all night because we go pretty hard here. We might not be the nicest, but we are fun. <laughs> And what have you, Stephen? Have you seen anything going on for New York City Beer Week that you're interested in? Um, yeah, it's a bunch of great stuff. I, I've so far has drank every beer at Strong Rope, which just opened. Um, so that was a that was a Saturday night that meant I had a pretty lazy Sunday. How, uh, how, how many beers was every beer they had there? Uh, ten. It's good going. So yeah, uh, so that was my, that's been my New York City Beer Week so far. But, yeah, it's been that's great. great. We got some sandwiches and we're chilling out. Um, um, do we know this is a smash beer? Do we know what hot? This one uses? You know, you well, do. what they were given, they were given um, Willamette uh, Cascade, New York Cascade, and mm-hmm. I want to say Chinook, but I could be wrong. I think it's Chinook. But it's also Chinook, the, the right? bigger focus is on the malt. Okay. So there's, there's a couple of new malt facilities upstate. And, and I think a lot of them leaned on the spelt just because the, the, the grain was easier for them to use. So there's definitely some spelt in there. Mm-hmm. So that's all we know about it. But that's been the big push is, is working with New York State grains and hops. Yeah, so, the, so you'll yeah, see so that around a, town a lot a more. bending of the word smash. <laughs> yeah. A little or a lot. Entirely bending the word state for something. You know, it's, it's, it's always great hanging out with you. And so much is going on with you guys. Um, we're going to get to the chase and talk about business and everything a lot. Um, first question is always, what's the future of indie craft breweries and... and uh, what do you think of all the different mergers and acquisitions? It's just such a crazy, crazy time for the industry. It kind of feels a little bit like, the, I don't know, the heart's been ripped out of it and kind of turned its head. And I think it's definitely going to come back stronger, but just the speed of acquisitions, both in the US and in the UK, it's, it's, it's a little bit disturbing and it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And I think there's going to be much more of a focus on independence. So the definition of craft beer has potentially lost some of its meaning. And for us, independent beer is such a focus. And independence is key to making fantastic beers. And 
if you're owned by someone else, if it's venture capitalists or if it's a big beer company, they're always going to be pushing an agenda and that agenda is ultimately going to affect the beer. Whereas if you're completely independent, that agenda can remain completely beer focused, which is ultimately going to be good for the beer. Do you, do you think there's a term that people still relate to, like microbrewery, something that, that, that gets them to say, wow, that's the kind of beer I want? Or is it a brew pub? Because craft is kind of losing its, its identity. It, it definitely is losing its identity, and I'm not sure there's something that's going to fill that vacuum at the moment, but for me, the one that makes sense that can fill it long-term is independent. And um, we are so passionate about independence that we're actually putting our independence into the articles of association that we have as a company, so it's going to make it completely impossible for any bigger company to ever own part of our business, and we feel so strongly we're going to change the setup of our company to ensure that happens. That's like a magic wand. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> since, you, uh, since you started, obviously so much has changed in the beer world. If you were kind of the, the young James and Martin today, what, what would be the first step? What would you do today uh, if you were starting in this culture of you know, where people actually know about beer uh, a bunch more than they did back in 2007? Well, I think we've almost got that as a case study because we're almost starting again from scratch with what we're building in Columbus, Ohio. So um, we bought a 42-acre site there and uh, the building is half finished. The equipment starts arriving in eight weeks' time. And what we're going to do from the get-go there is try and make our customers complicit in, in our success and help us build the business. So the equity punk business model that's underpinned our UK business, we've got 40,000 investors who love good beer as much as we do we're going to launch with that model in the u.s and try and build a business together with the people who enjoy the beers that we make how did columbus ohio come to be yeah um, why columbus that's a good question i went there for 12 hours i liked it and i thought to hell with it we're going to build something and we're going to build it here right on <laughs> so we didn't overthink it <laughs> you know when i was like 12 years old i was looking at maps of the world thinking about where i would have my empire and i identified it was either columbus ohio <laughs> or somewhere in florida and this was about 30, over 30 years ago. But and I found that it map. It makes sense. Yeah, you stole it from me. I stole me. that map, yeah. <laughs> That's punk rock, right? But, uh, and tell us about the punk rock. We have a lot more to talk about. We're just yeah. kind of getting warmed up. In this. Why is it business for punks? Two reasons. So we like to think that our beers have got the same attitude towards the incumbents of the beer market that the old school punks had to pop culture. So a rebellion against bland mass market mainstream beers. And secondly... One of the things that we love most about the punk movement from the 1970s was that DIY ethos. So the original punks learned the skills that they needed to succeed. And we hate having to depend on anyone for anything. So we want to learn the skills that we need to succeed and build our businesses ourselves. So it's that DIY bootleg punk mentality that we've used as well. That's great. We're going to take a short break. We're going to eat some of these banh mi sandwiches. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. In 1996, El Knife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's a special show. Jimmy's number 43 in New York City Beer Week. James Watt from uh, Brew Dogs just walked in. We've got Ann Becerra and Stephen Vallon. So you guys had some great experience working on your TV show. And, and, and tell us what you were talking about. You guys made a, a beer kit for Brew Dog and you're selling it. So Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just 
Brudod definitely has a passion for teaching people about good beer, and we thought um, that the best way to do that, or one of the best ways, would be to show people actually how to make it. Um, you've always been really open with your recipes and with helping people um, start up themselves. So yeah, we made a Punk IPA kit so that you can make Punk IPA. They're you know the flagship Brudod beer, and now we're working on another one, and um, it'll be out soon too. And and um, yeah, I, I know. Sorry that I did some pull quotes. Uh, I know that's always fun, but you wrote a. Let's see. You need to set the pace your your business moves at. You can't let others dictate this to you. And I do actually really like this book. I, I've never read a business book in my life. Um, my brother-in-law gave me a uh, like a beginner's MBA book when we started the company, and that was uh, I think I maybe got through the intro, and I did not enjoy it. Um, but there's business for dummies too. So. <laughs> yeah, the thing I like about this though is that I agree with everything in it, which is so rare. Uh, and what we definitely observed with um, working with um, James and Martin at Breedog was how quickly they move. And um, well, I like that you said not not to waste your time on a business plan, but to know your know your cash flow and your and your financials. How did that come about? Because most people spend so much time on a business plan, they never open a business. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we just thought business plan was a waste of time because we thought whatever we do after one week, everything's going to change and our ideas and perspectives and kind of be informed by what actually happens as opposed to some some glorified long-term guesswork. <laughs> so we thought we're not going to do any of that. And we thought as long as we're in good shape financially, we don't need too much of a plan. As long as we focus on the beer and the people and have some fun, wherever we end up is where we're supposed to end up. So, so you for Stephen's business, you've been selling his his beer kits. Yeah, we're at your bars and yeah, our bars and our online shop. And we started off by making beers at home. So, um, and we've still used the kit that we used to make beers at home to develop our recipes and stuff. So we're just so passionate about the whole community, and we want to kind of develop the next generation of home brewers who ultimately start making making their own beer businesses and all. Tell me more about you said this idea that you have these all these thousands of small investors and, and, and yeah. talk about your community and. I can see that by just working with Stephen and Brooklyn Brew Shop, helping them sell the product through your sites. What is your vision for thousands of investors helping you fund this new brewery in Ohio? Well, I think any marketplace for any business at the moment, it's so, so competitive. So you've got to find a way to, to connect and cut through. And we've done that through community. So we have a community of 40,000 equity punk investors, but they're brand advocates, they're ambassadors, they love our beer and they've underpinned everything we do. And they've helped us raise the finance to grow our business, but they've also helped us grow our business in so many more ways than just financial. So what, you, you, you actually offer like a, a share yeah. offering? And it's anyone, legitimate, legitimate stocks. It's legitimate stocks. Anyone can go to our website and from £95, they can own part of our business. That's kind of like Laphroaig. If you buy a bottle of Laphroaig, you get a, you get a square foot of, of land in Scotland, which I don't really believe. But in this case, you're saying this is a true ownership. Yeah, you own equity in your business. It's not just a marketing employer. You don't get a T-shirt, and that's it. No, no, you own equity in our business, and then every six months, we give people a chance to sell that equity as well. So the people who bought in in 2009, 2010 were able to sell that equity a few months ago for a four or 500% increase as well. So no, it's about how many, how, what percentage of those investors came in at the 95 pound level? Um, the average investment in our business is 500 pounds. So most come in a little bit above the 95. That's great. And what do they get? I mean, they, they get... So they get equity, but they get a lifetime discount in their online shop. They get a lifetime discount in all of our bars. They get an invite to our AGM. So we've got 6,000 people coming to our AGM in Aberdeen. Um, in two months' time, which is awesome. They get access to a, a website where they get informed with everything we're doing, but they get to vote on key decisions online, so they're very much part of our business and almost the heart and soul of our company. Wow. And I feel you feel that way about staff, too. I know that's really crucial in who you hire and yeah. your company culture. I think that's wonderful. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so we, we, we focus on two things, the beer and the people. So we're also the only living wage employer in our industry in the UK. I don't know if you have the living wage in the US, but it's way above the, the minimum wage. And it's so important that we over-invest in our people. And we want to hire people who believe what we believe. We want to hire people that are insanely passionate about fantastic beer. And the most valuable asset we have is our company culture. And my biggest challenge is making sure we don't only maintain that, but we enhance that as we continue to add to people in the team. So it's got a huge focus on personal development and making sure we're the best company to work for we possibly can be. It's like you said, I can't understand a word you're saying with your accent. <laughs> I can. It was a really good thing he just said. I believe I promise. <laughs> wow. What are we drinking right now? This is what uh, the other half, second, I'm only saying because I'm the only one who knows what it it's, is. Yeah, the second anniversary from other half or double IPA. Um, 
you know, I think that's so funny what you said about Brooklyn, but right now, you know, the scene in Brooklyn is really blowing up. Have you noticed anything about either Brooklyn or New York City specifically that you really are digging right now? Or I think it's just that focus on local and the Smash series almost kind of sums that up. And I think as more and more people start making good beer in the U.S., there's going to kind of refocus more on local, which this is doing and what's definitely happening in New York at the moment as well. So Brewdog is intensely focused on global domination. Mm-hmm. Whereas the beer scene now, in many ways, is focused on being as local as you can, how how do you think those two can be can be merged in a in a good way? Well, I think for us, the global domination, we always say a little bit tongue in cheek because that's what the kind of huge beer companies do. So we don't really mean that. And for us, we want to be really strong in Scotland. And when we set up in Columbus, the focus will be on being awesome in Columbus, being awesome in Ohio, and then slowly building out from there. But there will be a huge local focus for us in, in Columbus. You know, it's funny, our friend Josh Bernstein, he's an American beer writer. You probably met him. Uh, a few years ago, he brought me a whole bunch of, of Ohio beers to taste on air. And most of them aren't distributed outside of Ohio. And I don't know if you've thought, looked into the Ohio beer scene. Are they are they really into craft beer? Are they not exporting for a reason? Yeah, I mean, there's a really good beer scene there, but there's maybe... It's not quite as well developed as it is in other states in the U.S., so we see a bit of an opportunity. But for instance, the Columban, Columbus Brewing Company make fantastic beers in, in Columbus, so some good beers there, but a bit of an opportunity there as well. I think we've I think. had the, the Great Lakes. Yeah, they distributed outside, outside of New yeah. yeah. Have, you, have you had any beers from Ohio? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. In Great Lakes, I mean, they distribute to New Jersey, so whenever I'm across the border mm-hmm. into Jersey, I try to bring back a couple six-packs. Um, are you guys going to sell other Ohio beers mm-hmm. at your oh, restaurant? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I didn't yeah, know if it was yeah, just yeah. strictly no, no, new no. pub. So in all of our, we've now got 50 bar locations all over the planet, and we always sell 50% our beer and 50% um, amazing guest beers. Got it. And you'll be able to do that here because you're brewing. Yes. Correct. Okay, got it. Yeah, so what's the setup going to be like? So the initial setup in Columbus, Ohio, is it going to be a brewery, a brew pub? Um, it's going to be 100,000 square feet, so it's it's big, but everything's bigger in America, so what the hell. Um, we've got a 200 hectoliter uh, brew house going in. We're going to have a big tap room. We're going to have a... What's that 200 shop? hectoliters in, in barrels? 168.5. I think it's about that. It's about one seventy ish. So one hundred seventy thousand um, barrels. About one hundred seventy barrel brew house, barrels. but it'll be able to do about one hundred seventy thousand per year. But then we can expand that by adding fermentation tanks. Uh, we're going to have a canning line. We're not going to have a bottling line from the get go. We're going to have a tap room and restaurant and an awesome visitor center where people can come and do tours and that kind of stuff too. Wow, that's great. So will you be spending more time in in the states? Yeah, I'm going to have to. So I'm going to um, <laughs> I'm going to need to get my American accent down. I'm going to need to get my teeth whitened, and I'm going to learn to be much more polite. You're very polite. <laughs> so can, not so if you come to New York City, apparently. <laughs> no, not New York. But <laughs> I think with this book tour, you're, you're learning how to be polite. Thank you. That's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Columbus, Ohio. So then what, tell us more of the vision. So you're going to start in Columbus, Ohio. Start in Columbus, Ohio, and just see where we can go from there. So we're going to make our... Kind of flagship beers from the UK, so Punk IPA, Jack Hammer, Dead Pony Club, but we're also going to make a few beers there that are specific for the US. And in May or June, we're going to launch Equity for Punk USA, which is going to give Americans the chance to buy equity in our American company. And we're also going to look to open a few uh, few pubs in the States as well, but pubs where we make beer on site. So yeah, we've got a site almost locked in for one of them in downtown Columbus, and we're going to look to open a few from there as well. That's great, man. Congratulations. Um, let's open the floor. Any questions, Anne? Because that's pretty interesting. Opening a brewery in America. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny too. You're opening. You're coming here, and then, if I'm not mistaken, I read this that um, your second largest market is Sweden, and it's the same for Brooklyn Brewery as well. And a yeah. lot of different places, no matter where you come from, are doing really well in Scandinavia. Is there anything that like inspires you about what they're doing, or is there something you've noticed? Um, yeah, the. the situation in Scandinavia is fascinating. So our biggest market is Sweden, but it's closely followed by Finland and Norway. And the situation for distribution of alcohol there, it's a government monopoly in each country. So they've basically got these kind of chains of, of government monopoly stores where it's the only place you can buy alcohol that's not bars and restaurants. So it's so difficult to get in. But once you can get in, you've got blanket distribution and there's such a good awareness and understanding of good beer there and the consumers really love great beer and they've got fantastic selections which is why it's the biggest export market for us but also a lot of American the last, time well, I was so. in, the last time I was in Oslo it was, I got there the Wednesday before Easter 
and they literally put shackles uh, over <laughs> the beer. And we had to beg the person behind the counter to please let us like let them open it because there wouldn't be it, there would be no beer it on sale to me in, in our way for in five Ma- days. Boston area, Massachusetts, for Christmas on Christmas Day, same thing. All, all the, the the beer stores were locked up, you know. But um, so but how do you how do you break into something like that if it's so hard to get into into these these countries into their distribution? But I think part of the reason why the beer selection in these stores are so good, the only way to get in is to go through a blind tasting panel. So everything that's in there is in there based on taste. So you can't do any discounts. You don't have a marketing budget. You can't do any advertising. The only way to get on that shelf is to pass a tender process, which involves blind tasting. And that's why they've got a fantastic selection of beer. And that's maybe why beer is doing so well in these places. That is really interesting. I've never heard that before. Did you know that? I did not. That's so cool. Go Sweden. Go Sweden, go Norway, go Finland. Yeah, awesome. Wow. Clever Vikings. What's it like in Scotland? I mean, when you, when you first started, I know we, we talked about it a little bit, but so you got into that supermarket. What are the other outlets for you in the UK? Um, it, it's, it's tough, and part of the reason we started opening our own outlets is just because we found it difficult to get into outlets, but now we sell to some supermarkets, we sell to our own locations. Is that more sandwiches? Or is that some beer? (laughs) (laughs) Whenever that rings, something awesome happens. (laughs) It's the masseuse we order. I don't know. Someone's going to get them, but... Um, And now we're starting to to sell to other pubs and and bars and restaurants and stuff as well, so... (laughs) It's a busy place. Keep talking, don't worry. So, okay, beer for punks. Let me ask you. There's a BrewDog World Tour. Who is headlining? Alive or dead? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Who's headlining? Uh, let's go The Clash. Good answer. Good so, since we are at Jimmy's in the East Village, the uh, the old CBGB mirror blocks away, now with John Barbados. Um, can we settle this? Where, where did punk music start? <laughs> uh, London. It's <laughs> a UK thing. You guys have just hijacked it. Well, if we throw Iggy Pop in there, or... Yeah. Oh, you're going to do any collaborations with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I mean, I can see that being a really cool. Um, yeah, possibly. So in the their house beer. <laughs> in the UK, in the UK, it's now the 40th anniversary of, of punk this year, and there's only one band that's continuously been playing since uh, since 19, uh, 1970, 76, um, which is the UK Subs. So they've been going 40 years, so they're actually headlining our AGM and we're making a beer in collaboration with the UK Subs, which is this punk band that would be on, on the road playing continuously for 40 years. I'd like to do some music stuff. That's fun, man. You know, it's true. This is CBGB is right around the corner. I never think of this as punk rock anymore. I think this is like the Bermuda Triangle of beer because we have all our great beer bars on this block and even Mitsorley's down the street. So you forget how long that wasn't that long ago, you know? We got some artists coming down doing some theater stuff and... I'm getting distracted. We drank that other half second anniversary Imperial IPA. This beer's amazing, like the hop character, but just the bitterness, it hits you like a sledgehammer in the back. It's, uh, it's pretty mortish. Oh, yeah. I'm getting excited for the mash tag as well. <laughs> I think that's coming up soon. Not, not, not bad for an afternoon, right? Monday. So we, we've all been drinking beer since... Uh, well, beer week started on Friday. We've been doing radio shows almost every day. Starting around 12 noon every day, so... Uh, we're getting somewhere with them. I'm glad you came in. It's a good, it's a good week to spend a week. <laughs> but uh, Columbus, Ohio. Anything else about Ohio? I mean, uh, have you been there? Do you, do you sell beer kits there, Steve? Um, yeah, we sell uh, we sell our kits in a few places. We're going to be there this summer. Um, wondering if you've uh, have you had a chance to meet LeBron James yet? Um, who's that? Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's also in Cleveland. Official governor of Ohio. Does he, does he play like American football or <laughs> tennis or something? But he's not in Columbus. He's in Cleveland. It's not all just one. One big place. Like I think we, we need to have a show Seahawks. about Ohio beer. Towns. It's all good. We need to have a show about Ohio beer. But this is this is what's why you're brilliant, man. You're in Columbus, Ohio. No one even knows where it is. Jimmy. He thinks it's LeBron James town, but it's. I mean, I'm, I imagine the residents of Columbus are. Cavaliers fans. So, so, so one of the reasons that we decided to go there was I was like visiting different cities in the US trying to decide where to open up. So we went to some places in South Carolina, we went to some places in Philadelphia, I went to Columbus and every time I got off the plane I would just tweet, hey I'm here in wherever, where should I go for a beer? In most places maybe 10 people would like tweet me back. I did that in Columbus and my phone just about exploded. So I thought Columbus feels good, let's do it here. That's really cool. Are there any places, besides, not necessarily for a business or the right place for you to have your mm-hmm. next brewery, but in the United States, is there anything that you just were really, this is unique, this is something special, you know? 
yeah. outside of the main the main players. Yeah, well, what I've been most excited about in terms of US beers in the last 12 months has been Jay Wakefield down in Miami. Um, he makes the best Berliner Weisses on the planet. They're insane. But if you go and visit his tap room, you get these amazing Berliner Weisses and huge, like, 20-foot-high Star Wars graffiti murals in the walls. <laughs> it's just it's just amazing. And we actually had Jonathan over in Scotland two weeks ago with us making a collaboration in a Scottish Berliner Weiss. So, yeah, Wakefield and his Berliner Weiss. Yes, we could drink those all day. They're so good. All right. Good call. Hey, we'll take a short break. We'll have more of the... I'm going to call the Bon sandwich here the Brew Punk Bon sandwich. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, it's New York City Beer Week. We've got James Watts from Brewdots. <laughs> you know, there's so many beers right now. In fact, today we tried to find, find new beers, and, I, and you've made changes in distribution. But literally, you know, your, your distributor union beer and a number of stores we usually count on, like um, here in the neighborhood, there's Good Beer and there's also uh, ABC. Whole, and Whole Foods. Nobody had your beer. So what's going on in terms of your distribution? Because everybody wants... Everyone's like, why can't we get Brudot? And we've actually stopped it for now, so we just got so frustrated at tasting our beers in the US, not the way they're supposed to taste. So um, the IPAs, by the time they got to customers, they were just too old and too oxidized and not their best. So we've stopped distribution until we get set up in Columbus where we can let people see what our beers are actually supposed to taste like stateside. And that's the thing that people might not realize, because I imagine people hear your name more than they've actually tasted your beer. And... I, I was probably a naysayer uh, up until like five years ago when I went to your Camden pub and we tried everything and we thought, oh, oh, now it makes sense. And I imagine a lot of people um, have that same effect, uh, same thought. And that's what we want to do out of Columbus, Ohio, and that's exactly why we stopped distribution until we do that. So now you're only going to you're gonna wait till you have beers made in the States yeah. before you sell beers in, in the yeah. States? Yeah. What was the thought process with those, I mean, those crazy, I think one of the big splashes that was made here in the U.S. were the Sink the Bismarck and the, you know, I got that as a present, yeah. you know, once from a friend for my birthday. It was like such a big splash. Where did you come up with that? How did it get started? How did it work out for you? Well, we love challenging people's perceptions of what beer is, how it can be tasted, how it can be enjoyed. We love kind of pushing the boundaries and taking innovation in beer to places where it's never been before. So that's why we kind of started off on this journey of let's see how strong we can make a beer in, in the UK far too many people think beer starts with a, with Stella and finishes with, with Tenants or, or Heineken or something it just beer just exists in the spectrum kind of like fizzy lager so we thought by making these kind of insanely strong beers we could shock people into thinking about beers in a different way and also give people an amazing drinking experience and we've made beers as strong as 55% and these are beers that you've got to drink the same way you would drink like a nice scotch whiskey or something I mean, I remember when you made the, the really strong beers, and it, it was a big deal. But um, was that just to prove a point, or did you, did you really want to have beers 55%? No, we, 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 we wanted to make beers of that strength and just see what some of our favorite beers would taste like once we kind of concentrated them at that strength to see how the market would react and to kind of make a statement and hopefully... Um, the packaging for the 55% one as well. We did that in taxidermy, <laughs> so we had so that in Stoats and Squirrels just to shock people into thinking about beer in a different way and, com- and also to combine the three things that in life we're most passionate about, uh, beer, art, and taxidermy. <laughs> and I think I drink those too as a, in place of a whiskey or a digestif. I mean, it could be like a hop cordial, you know, and you're not sitting here drinking it out of Steins. Exactly. You know? You know, have you had uh, any of the brewery beers, you know, Patrick Rue? Yeah, yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I've been to visit Patrick and love the stuff that he does. He does some some amazing. But how do you make a beer? I mean, beer. he's making beers eighteen to twenty percent that taste really balanced. They have nice mm-hmm. mouthfeel. How do you make a beer like that that doesn't taste too strong? Time, time, time is the kind of main main thing. He he brewed a beer when his kid was born that he plans on opening up when he's twenty one. So uh, there aren't many beers like that. So it's time because I, I can have a twelve or thirteen percent beer, some imperial stout that just tastes too alcoholic. Mm. Then I'm having one of his 18 or 20 percent, and they, they taste more balanced. And I think the fact that he focuses on on Belgian yeast strains as well. I think they 
reduce less, so these kind of very alcoholic phenols when you push them to higher ABVs, I think that helps as well. The fact that he's always got a good bit of candy sugar in the mix as well, kind of gives you another fermentable that's easier for the for these yeast to kind of work on and stuff, but just time after fermentation, time aging a note just kind of helps it mellows out, takes away all those kind of harder alcohol flavors and lets all the other flavors come before. You know, in the book you're talking a lot about business, but there's one thing that you, you haven't mentioned and I want to ask you about. You, so last year, you and Patrick Grew, you both were named Master Cicerones, which you, you're being modest about because yeah. <laughs> some of us at this table have, have, have taken that test and a lot of our friends have. You know, what was that process like? Did you actually study for it or did you just know this stuff by heart? No, I studied. I studied. It was, you're <laughs> I studied. you're very modest because I know you worked hard on it to get it. Yeah. And just tell us about that process and, and why you wanted to become a Master Cicerone. Well, the, the exam was, was so intense. It was two days. You taste 100 beers blind. There's 12 hours of kind of written exams. There's um, four different spoken exams and stuff as well. But for us, we champion kind of personal development and education within our teams. So we now have 70 certified Cicerones within our teams. We've got loads of certified beer servers for each level that our team pass. We pay them more money. We pay for the study materials. We fly the examiner over to the UK to do the exams for us. So Cicerone is so, so important for us as a company because it's that knowledge, it's that passion. And because we're focused on it so much, I thought as, as kind of um, captain of the company, I had to kind of go for the master <clears throat> master exam. But it was just so much fun to study for. You're tasting beers. You're learning about some of the fantastic beer styles from all over the planet. It's not like studying. It's just like, this is how I want to spend my time anyway. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a tough exam. It was an intense couple of days, and I was happy to, happy to pass it. Now, it's interesting because I know from last year it was you and Patrick Rue from the brewery. And, yeah. and I thought, wow, there's two brewers who, who've got it this time when so many others have failed. I mean, do you think that really knowing about brewing processes gave you an advantage? Yeah, I mean, it helps. I mean, it's what I do kind of day in, day out anyway, is kind of is kind of, kind of work with these things. So, yeah, because it's my day job, definitely gives gave me a bit of an advantage when it came to the exam. And we, I mean, I do like maybe three or four tasting panels a week and stuff as well in, in Scotland, so that helps. But you're very modest, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, sitting with you, you're modest. Thanks. Everyone else will be wearing a massive Cicerone <laughs> pen. And, <laughs> instead, you're wearing a BrewDog pen. So. I've got a tattoo on like, my chest. Oh, yeah. Cicerone. <laughs> with the number. 008. All right. That's cool. I mean, you know, the Cicerone thing is interesting, and it's, it's interesting that you have your many people in your company working on it, you know? Well, it's great. I think studying for it, like you said, is more... is almost more fun or more exciting than, than passing. You know, you learn so much and you tend to overstudy. And now you're left with a staff full of people that are great ambassadors for not just your beer, but beer in general. Yeah. That's great. And what we always say to our team who's doing any level of the Cicerone exams, pass or fail, at the end of the process, you're getting to know more about beer than you did at the start, which is the ultimate goal. So get stuck in and do your best. And I think, I don't know if this is true, but I think you found out while we were at uh, Pak Pak in Brooklyn, so I'd like to claim a little credit for that. I, I did, yeah. Had, and I had nothing to do with it. Tell us more about the shoot. So how many days did you guys spend in Brooklyn to do that show? It was uh, four days shooting with a kind of day beforehand just to get acclimatized and get set up and stuff. So yeah, four days of uh, four days of filming. The final scene was uh, up in the top of uh, Stephen's apartment building, and it was so cold. Yeah, and we got Wiley Dufresne to smoke some uh, oh, nice. duck eggs. That that um, was the guy that looked homeless, huh? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so he smoked some duck eggs that we then dropped into the beer uh, for the, the final the final drink of the night. So Who picks your nice. collaborators? How do this? How do these breweries get chosen? Are they friends, personal? Or? Um, a, a mix of both. I mean, we 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 always kind of decide who we want to who we want to work with. So we, I mean, we decided that in New York and especially Brooklyn, it's famed for making beers at home, and we love what Stephen and Erica did. So we're passionate about working with these guys here. We've worked with Stone a few times just because we know the guys so well, and worked with Dogfish Head just because we're like huge fans of what they do. So yeah, we just kind of pick and choose who we want to. Did you with. pitch Esquire? Or did they pitch you? Um, they pitched us. That's great. And let's go back to the UK, UK beer scene. I know you mentioned writer, one of your punk, you got all these great quotes in your book and you mentioned the, the punk writer, uh, Pete Brown. I like his work a lot. I've got his world's best ciders here. I know he writes about beer and cider. Um, tell me about Pete Brown because I've never met him and I wish I could. Oh, you did. I, I was actually with him. Uh, he came up to visit us uh, four days ago. So we're doing some work with Pete at the moment, but Pete has done like so much for the kind of good beer movement in the UK and he kind of straddles that kind of traditional cask thing but he's doing that with like a kind of desire to kind of take that kind of kicking and screaming into the 21st century but he's also at the vanguard of kind of what's happening in the craft beer movement as well but just such a talented 
writer, his books are fantastic. If it's the kind of more descriptive ones, or if it's the kind of ones like Three Sheets to the Wind, which is just a book that you laugh all the time when you're reading. So yeah, Pete's, Pete's awesome to hang out with, and like such a huge ambassador and advocate for the whole good beer scene in the UK. Let's talk about this beer, Ian. It's delicious. I want to throw some s'mores on the fire and have this. So I mean, hashtag yeah. number, f- fifteen U.S. hop black barley wine. So black barley wine almost doesn't exist. So it's like a big, big black IPA almost. But then with any big IPA, when you age it, and this has now got um, six or seven months age on it, then the kind of hops start fading, and it kind of morphs into something maybe even more interesting than, than it was when the hops were super punchy. What's the, on the back label? Is, is this like a expired date or something? Um, yes. So um, it's best before sometime in 2020, which is just a guess. Who knows when these beers are best before? <laughs> it's a big, strong dark beer. Is that just what you it. put on all your bottles? Um, no. So the kind of light, before. yeah, best before, but light hoppy ones, we kind of give give a few months and then the kind of big imperial stouts, we encourage people but is to that Is that your them. label edition or is that like a UK thing? Oh no, we, we put that on. So you make best before. Yeah. Best and before. you have quite a few interesting series, like including the prototype series. Uh, could you explain for some of us in America that have never seen any yeah. of the prototype beers? So um, each year we make the prototype series, which is beers that we're thinking about making. We then send them out to our customers and they tell us what one they want us to make. So this year we had a milk oatmeal stout, we had an India Pale Session Lager, we had a Hoppy Red Ale, and we also had a Citrus IPA. So the one that won was the uh, milk oatmeal stout, but it's voted for by the people who's going to enjoy the beer. So it's making sure they play a part in deciding what we're going to make, because ultimately they're going to be the ones that enjoy that beer. I'll tell you, you guys are so cool. I feel like I should move to Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> Start hanging out near your new brewery, don't you think? Create so? your new empire that you were oh, yeah, planning 30 years, years ago. <laughs> yeah. We should do an episode there when we open. Done. We'll, we'll do it. We'll come out. <laughs> and we can invite LeBron. <laughs> Please. <laughs> and have a game of ice hockey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some beer pong with LeBron James and uh, James Watt. LeBron James Watt. Does he play for the Wheel Cleveland Captains? Basically, yeah. The Pennsylvania Puppies? <laughs> the New York Cowboys? Cleveland taking it easy. But are we all supposed to know who LeBron James is? I mean, we do, but we should. It's pretty great. I, I actually don't. We, we play soccer. We call it football, but if, if he doesn't play soccer, I, I don't know. He doesn't well, play it's big in Greece. It's okay. something you can learn about. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, all right, let's have one more beer. We I don't know what we have. We have uh, the brew dog. We just did that. We'll pick pick a beer. From you know what we're gonna thing. do? We're gonna drink um, New York's take on a UK classic. We have an English mild brewed from Rockaway. Ooh, that just sold out. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> let's not do it. Our, uh... How about this one? Let's try the Bridge and Tunnels. The tank. Yeah, another saison. smash. Yeah. Right saison. on. We'll do that in a little half and uh, and Bridge and Tunnel. You got to visit. There's a lot of places you have to visit. I mean, Rich is out. He started out with a licensed garage brewery, literally the garage behind his house. And now he's just actually rented a, a slightly larger space in Queens. And, and he has a tasting room now. So everyone has, but he was the perfect craftsman where he had built all his system to, pretty much from scraps and he, he made every batch of beer. And now he's expanded and, and that's a whole personal journey for him. And I'm really proud of him. But I want you to try his beer because. Sounds good. Yeah, it's, uh, we, we, we still love those guys, with the, the, the tinkerers who are making their own beer. But there's only a handful of them left. There's only this, this out on Long Island, we have a guy, Paul from Blind Bat. Same situation, he has a licensed garage brewery, pretty much does everything himself, and he's looking for a slightly larger space. That's part, one of the great parts of New York City beer scene, that there's some new, newer breweries open up, the 15, 30 barrel systems or more, and there's still guys doing, doing garage beers, too. So this is, you taste it, see what you think of it, because this is also made with the state malt and state hops. So that's his inter- interpretation. Uh, I wish I knew more about the malts. There's probably some spelt in there, and told you about some of the hops. But it's a nice saison. But it's really awesome when you get to see beer on an international level because you have like America like really leapfrogged most of a lot of the world in what we were doing and then let's say you went to London um, six years ago and you'd you'd go to the Colonel and yeah. that was it for the most part and you go back today and you see five or six breweries in that one neighborhood alone uh, so now New York has their we're having our big explosion in breweries, and you know another city like Paris might be next. They have two, for the most part, today, and maybe next, maybe in two years, they're going to have five or six um, amazing breweries. 
How are the U- how are people in the UK responding to sours? Because that's kind of our big thing now. <laughs> I know it's like one thing at a time. Hops first. We get there on our own. But you know, I know you guys are working on some sour program. Right? Yeah, yeah. So so um, it's going to take a wee bit of time. I mean, what the kind of beer geeks totally get it and they're all over it. But the beer geek community in the UK is like so so small. Um, the look of confusion, shock, disgust, and anger in most other people's faces when you give them a sour beer in the UK is uh, is, is is quite fun. Yeah, you had a hoppy berry sour prototype. Yes, we did. Yeah, that I really liked. I gave it to some people and they were confused, but it was actually one of the, one of my favorite beers I had last year. Yeah, do you get all the like super duper hookups with Scotch barrels? Yeah, well, we're so lucky. We're um, 25 miles from the Speyside Cooperage and they have half a million casks on site so it's like it's amazing I love going there but do you get the game Jenga here? Of course it's the most stressful game in existence Try playing it with uh, whiskey casks (laughs) because the whiskey casks that I want are usually at the bottom of these massive piles so it's like well do I take two hours and unbuild it or do I just take my life at my own hands and pull this one out from the bottom and hope for the best so yeah whiskey cast Jenga it's fun The key to Jenga is that every piece is slightly different um, in a set, most much like whiskey casks. Yeah. Mm. Is, that, is that what you guys are doing at your place tonight? I love Django. <laughs> I love Django. But you think about scotch, though. So, so for every batch of scotch, they're using a, a new cask. Is that the case? Bourbon. But that's for bourbon, but not for scotch. Not for scotch, no. So they'll usually use a cask maybe three or four times and then put it for somewhere else. But then. It's just a variety of different casks, so focus on using a lot of ex-bourbon ones, but ex-sherry, ex-wine, and a whole host of other things as well. How do they, um, they make feel about your beers? Hmm? Like, how do the whiskey, the old-time distillers <coughs> and the traditional whiskey distillers feel about your funky? Yeah, beers? yeah, good. I mean, we work with some amazing distillers in Scotland to get their, to get their casks, and then they kind of sometimes finish some of their whiskeys and some of the casks that had our beer in it and stuff. So, yeah, we've got good relationships with some of the best distillers in Scotland. How many years did that take? Um, a few, and a lot of cases of beer given to them as well. <laughs> that was in your book too. You talked about giving back. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. So you're saying you're dealing with vendors and things. You you you'll for better terms. Sometimes you give them beer. Yeah, well, I mean, if we can just improve the terms that we've got with the people to do business with just a tiny bit. Overall, it's going to make a huge, huge difference. And the best way to do that is not to just shout at them to give us a better deal. It's to give them something's back and work with them and work with them long term. So. And we love working closely with our suppliers and giving them as much beer as we can and making them feel part of our business and working together. And then if we build our business, they can build their business and everyone's going to win together. I think one, one, uh, one anecdote from your book was a, kind of a, some, a little more boring was about working with a bank and getting better terms on a deal. But, uh, you give those guys beers too? I know the title of that chapter was actually Make Banks Your Bitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which for a lot of small breweries, like, seriously... The banks, you're you're kind of beholden to them uh, largely. So yeah, just getting to any advantage you can. It's got to got you, to play them for all you can. Because you work in beer, and beer, everyone agrees, is cool. Well, one last thing. One last thing from everyone, and then we're gonna wrap it up. You just spoke, James. Final final statement about your book. Um, it's not about the book, but a saison is the best beer style to drink mid afternoon. <laughs> Cheers to that. And Cheers to that. Um. Come back to me. I feel like there's got to be a good question I'm not thinking of. All right. Come back to you next time. All yeah. Right? Well, thanks, good. everybody, to James, Stephen, and Anne for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers and to our engineer, Jack Inslee. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.